0: And last week we looked <coughs> at the Apostle John's letter, actually it's Christ's letter through the Apostle John to the church at Ephesus, and we saw that this church, while it maintained doctrinal purity, <coughs> it was very protective of the gospel, it had abandoned the agape. Uh, he said, you've left your first love. and the Greek it just says, you've left the love, you've left the agape. And uh, I'm convinced that it means that they have abandoned the agape feast where benevolence was uh, given and where alms were given and people may have only eaten uh, their, their only good meal during the week and they have failed to continue to do that. And... We saw how food was important to God's people, and I thought that was somewhat of a revelation. We're going to see that again this week. Now, this week, we're going to look at two persecuted churches. First, a church that's persecuted by uh, Jews, and then the second church that's persecuted by the Roman government. So let's look at verse 8. It says, To the angel or the messenger of the church in Smyrna write. Now, Smyrna is located about 40 miles north of Ephesus and is a port city itself, and therefore it was a center for commerce, very wealthy city. The word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, uh, which is a fragrant, sticky substance that was used for all kinds of things, including the uh, wrapping uh, dead bodies in it when, for burial. And uh, it was a very wealthy city, and originally this city was designed by Alexander the Great, <coughs> back in like 330 B.C. And he designed it in a special way that it had four tiers, a city with four tiers. And the first tier was at sea level, at the harbor level, and the fourth tier went up to 500 feet. And there was a main thoroughfare that was called the Street of Gold. Now, when Jesus talks about standing on streets of gold later on in Revelation, you need to understand that in light of what's going on at Smyrna. Their main thoroughfare was called the Street of Gold. It curved on those four tiers, around those four tiers, up past Mount Pegasus till it reached the Temple of Zeus, who was the highest god in the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods. And in the temple of Zeus, there was a golden statue of Zeus himself. It was a replica of the statue of Zeus in Greece, which towered hundreds of feet in the air and was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so this street of gold went right up To the father of all gods, Zeus, and uh, that temple was the crown of Smyrna, and it was all these temples that they would have in their cities. These uh, these Roman cities were always put at the pinnacle of the city, so that you, when you looked up, what you saw was the temples and they were located in various parts of the city. There weren't only temples of, for Zeus, but there were temples to Caesar and uh, the emperor who also proclaimed himself to be a god under Zeus and so on and so forth. I was talking to Mark Ford last week, and he just came back from uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, <coughs> and I said, isn't that a beautiful city? And he says, one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been in in the United States because when you are going down their highway, their thoroughfare, on both sides of you, Uh, Both sides of you are mountains that are always snow-capped. And they're so beautiful. All you can do, you can't get your eyes off the mountains. You're always looking up. And I was there in the summer uh, several years ago. But the mountains were snow-capped, even in June. And all you could do was look up. You couldn't get your eyes off of that. And I kept thinking of the scripture, that we look unto the hills from whence cometh our help. Our help cometh from the Lord. And uh, in these cities, temples were constructed. And they were constructed at the highest point. So this would be 500 feet above the harbor. And when you looked up, you saw this tremendous temple of Zeus. And to get there, to reach the Father God, you had to go on the street of gold to get there. Now look how Jesus identifies himself. That's Smyrna. Look how he identifies himself in verse 8. These things, writes the first and the last. That's a a description Jesus gave back in chapter 1 and verse 11. Who was dead and came to life. Now, he describes himself this way to the church at Smyrna because they too will be faced with death. And they're going to have an opportunity to either abandon the faith or hold to the faith and face death. And Jesus says, well, I died too, but guess what? What's he say in verse 8? I came back to life. And like your master, you too will come back to life. And so that's how Jesus identifies himself. Now he makes an acknowledgment. He says, I know your works, your tribulation, and poverty, (coughs) but you are rich. Now, in each letter, Jesus says, I know something. And here he says, I know your works, meaning both good and bad, the things that you do. I know your tribulation, your suffering, the affliction that you're facing, and the poverty, the, the material uh, monetary oppression that you're experiencing under the Roman government. He says, but in reality, you're rich. Now, uh, meaning rich toward God. You may be poor in this world, but in God's kingdom, God considers you rich. Because you're an heir. You're an heir that everything that God owns... Now, they've been talking about inheritance tax, haven't they, in the United States. Well, guess what? You've got an inheritance. And everything that God owns is yours. And you're an heir, and you're a co-heir with Christ Jesus. And so even though in this world you might look like you're dirt poor, and in this case they were poor not by choice, but because they were oppressed and they could only have certain kinds of jobs. But in God's eyes, they're rich. And they will be rich in the kingdom. Now when he says, I know all these things, he doesn't know this from afar. He doesn't know this from a distance. Because we saw last week, he said, I walk in the midst of the churches. He knows these things because he's right here in our midst. And everything that we do and the circumstances in our life, guess what? Christ knows what's going on in your life. Just as he knew what was going on here in the church at Smyrna. So then he says, and I know something else. I don't only know about you, I know about your enemies. You might think, oh, God knows my circumstances, but he doesn't know what they're doing. He knows what everyone's doing. He knows what the good people are doing. He knows what the bad people are doing. I know the blasphemy. The word means slander. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not but are a synagogue or an assembly of Satan. The word Satan means slanderer. So he says, I know who your enemies are. These are people that are slandering you. They're slandering the name of Christ. They call themselves Jews, but they're not. Now, they were Jews. They were physical Jews. They've been circumcised in the flesh. But he says, they have been circumcised in the heart. They're not spiritual Jews. Remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, We have Abraham as our father. And he said, Your father is who? The devil. That's who your father You don't call yourself a Jew after Abraham. You're, you're a child of the devil. And here's exactly what Jesus says to this church uh, to these uh, Jewish people in this city. He says, You say you're Jews, you're really not. You are an assembly of Satan. The slanderer. So there's evidently a probably a synagogue or a group of Jewish people that are causing havoc for this church in Smyrna. So he knows you and he knows your enemies. Now he gives an admonition. He says, verse 10, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Now he says some bad things are going to come upon you. Probably because of these Jews. Persecution at the hands of Jews. He says, uh, and, and many of these Jews may have been turning some of the Christians over to Roman authorities because these Christians were saying Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. So we just don't know what's going on, but he says, you are going to experience some suffering or tribulation, some affliction, but do not fear, or more literally, stop fearing. It's a command, and it's a continuous command. So... He's saying, stop fearing. And they're anticipating this suffering, and they're going, oh, what are we going to do about it? See? Fear is going to rob you of any peace that you ever experienced. They'll just take it right away from you. That's the what-if syndrome. What if I can't find a job? What if my kid doesn't get into that college? What if? He says, stop worrying. Stop fearing. Verse 10. Indeed, because you are going it's going to happen. Indeed, look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, not the devil literally, but his representatives on earth. Uh, the kingdom of God is... Representative, we're in the kingdom of God. We represent Christ, our Lord. The kingdom of Satan is represented by Caesar and the Roman government and those that are of this assembly of Satan. He says, you're going to be thrown in prison, but don't fret it. Look at the purpose for them being thrown in prison. The middle of verse 10. That, look at that. So that in order that you may be tested. Uh, God allows things to happen in our lives to test our faith to see if we're the real McCoy. And he says they're going to be tested and thrown in prison. That's the purpose, so that they will be tested. God will put them through a test, a refiner's fire. (coughs) And then look what he says. You will have tribulation or affliction or suffering ten days. Now that's not a literal ten days. Numbers in the book of Revelation mean something. And ten is symbolic of something that's complete. Ten commandments. That's the completion. Ten plagues. Uh, Daniel says in the the book of Daniel, he says, uh, uh, put me to the test for ten days, he says in Daniel chapter 1. So ten days speaks of completeness, and so they're going to be completely tested, thoroughly tested to prove that their faith is real. And then he says this, Be faithful unto death, at the end of verse 10. You mean we're not going to pull out of this? No, some of you won't pull out of it. Some of you will be put to death. I will give you the crown of life. Even if you're put to death, you're going to have life. Don't worry about it. Don't fret. That's why he identified himself up there in verse 8 as the one who was dead and what? Came back to life. And he's going to give us life, so don't worry about it. Don't deny Christ when you're put under pressure. And then he says in verse 11, this is his next admonition, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We can all benefit from that advice. Listen, heed. He who overcomes, he who is victorious in the test, even if he dies, even if he's put to death, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the what? The second death. See, now this is why these letters to The seven churches are important because there are concepts that you find in these letters like street of gold, second death, that come much later in the book of Revelation. And if you don't have the context here, you don't know what it means. So when Jesus says in verse 11, uh, he who overcomes, even if you're put to death, in other words, but you overcome by not denying Christ, you shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, look over at Revelation 20. (coughs) Let me show you something. Now, look what he says in verse 6, Revelation 20 and verse 6. He says, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Well, if you're resurrected, that means you died. But you're blessed because you have part in that first resurrection. That's chapter 20 and verse 6. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now look over at chapter 21. Chapter 21. That's the Christian's fate. No second death. But look at 21.8. But the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the sexually immoral. And the sorcerers, and the idolaters, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is what? The second death. So, what Jesus is saying is that if you're a born-again Christian, you will not experience the second death. Born twice, die once. If you're a believer, you've been born again. You've been born twice. You only die once. It may be in persecution, maybe from old age, maybe an accident, maybe a disease, but you'll die once. Born twice, die once. But if you're an unbeliever, you've only been born once physically. Born once, die twice. You'll die physically like everybody else one day, but guess what? You'll die a second time. You'll be resurrected, you'll stand before the judgment throne of God, and you'll be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Christians are promised to escape that no matter what happens to them in this life. Hey, that should be a word of encouragement. Now we come to the next church. So we're going to do it with the second church. Look at verse 12, back in chapter 2 and verse 12. I think we can get through two churches today. That's pretty good, isn't it? <clears throat> okay, let's look at verse 12. <clears throat> and to the church or the messenger of the church at Pergamos, right. Now if you go another 40 miles north of Smyrna, you're going to hit Pergamos. And uh, some of your translations say Pergamum, but it's basically the same town. And here's what it says. These things says he who holds, let me see, verse uh, verse 12. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now what in the world does that mean? He has a sharp two-edged sword. Well, we're going to see this later on because when Christ comes back, there's a sword that comes out of his mouth, which is the word of God. But why does he call the word of God a sword? This is language that's borrowed from the Roman Empire, because Rome, the Roman government, granted Pergamus the right of the sword. That was what it was called. Pergamus had the right of the sword, which meant... The government of Pergamos had the right to execute criminals. Now, not every city had the right to do that. <laughs> Remember when the Jews wanted to kill Jesus? Could they do that? No, they had to go get permission. See. And they couldn't even do it. Pilate had to do it. And not every city had the right to execute. But Pergamos had been given the right of the sword to execute criminals who had committed capital crimes. So Pergamus was a very special city. In Asia Minor, in fact, (coughs) it was the capital city of Asia Minor. And it had privileges that other cities in Asia Minor didn't have that were given to them by the Roman government. It had tremendous university in the city. It had uh, a library that uh, held 200,000 volumes, which was one of the largest libraries in the world. And it had several temples. Now, where were those temples located? High as you can get them. Now I want to tell you about two or three of these temples that were in Pergamos. The first temple was a temple that was dedicated to the god Asclepius, which was the god of healing, symbolized by a snake. You know the symbol for medicine? You see a cross and you see a snake. Well, this was the temple to the snake god, the god of healing. And people would travel from the far reaches of the empire to Pergamos, To come to this temple for a miracle cure. It was like like lords over in Europe. People would come from all over to be be healed. Now how did you get healed? Well in the temple there were these snakes that were let loose. And they slithered around the temple all the time. And people would come in and they would uh, eat a meal. Make their sacrifice to uh, Asclepius the god and then. They would lie down and hope that one of these snakes would slither over their body, and through the touching of their body by the snake, they'd be healed. So that was one of the temples. There were four temples that were dedicated to the Caesars. You like that, don't you? (laughs) Maybe we'll have a healing service next week. (laughs) There were four temples dedicated to the Caesars. And uh, the present Caesar was Domitian, and there was a temple dedicated to him. And once a year, every person that lived in Pergamos was required to go to one of these temples and declare publicly, Caesar is Lord. Now, of course, the Christians refused to do that. Because they said Jesus was Lord, so what do you think happened to them? They were punished. They were persecuted. And then at the pinnacle of the city was another temple, a temple to Zeus, the, God, the father of all Greek and Roman gods. And, of course, that was a... Very important temple, and also had a statue of Zeus in it. So now Christ makes some acknowledgments. He says, like he does in, to all the other churches, I know something. I know your works, meaning your good and bad works, and I happen to know where you live. I know where you dwell, where your where your residence is. You live where Satan's throne is, which is likely a reference to maybe the temple of Zeus or one of the temples of of Caesar. Uh, because that's Satan resides. there. It's not a temple of God. It's a temple of Satan. And so he says, you live where Satan rules, a city ruled by Satan. And you, this is a positive thing, you hold fast my name. You refuse to say Caesar's Lord. You say Jesus is Lord. You hold fast to my name. That means they abide in Christ. They never let go. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And uh, according to early Christian writings, Antipas was one of these people who was brought before the temple of Zeus, uh, the statue of Zeus in the temple, and was told to say, Caesar is Lord, and he said, Jesus is Lord, and as a result of that, he was put to death. In fact, the man who was going to execute him said, don't you know that the whole world is against you? And he said, then I'm against the whole world. And they had a bull, a brass bull, larger than life, that was hollowed out. And they threw coals in there and they heated it up until it was red hot. And they took Antipas and they threw him inside the body of that brass bull and he roasted to death. And that's how they killed Christians because you refused to say that Jesus was Lord. That's why the gospel message was a very political message in that day. You didn't bow down the knee to the government, then you paid a price. Now Jesus was very commendatory about that, but he has a concern in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those, not all of you, but in your midst, you have some people in your church who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now last week, Balaam, let me just finish reading it, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, now watch this, to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now this is a reference back to Numbers chapter 25 where uh, Balaam persuades the Israelite men to uh, go in and have sexual relationships with the Moabite women Eat sacrificial meals to their gods, make sacrifices to their gods, and uh, by doing so, basically denying the God of Israel. And now a similar thing is happening right here in this church in Pergamos. There are some members of this church who are going into these temples of Caesar and Zeus, and they're eating meals. With the pagans, meals that involve sacrifices to the Roman gods and are probably getting involved in all kinds of sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes. And he says, there's some in your congregation that are doing that. They're eating meals that are offered to idols in pagan temples. And then guess what they do on Sunday? They come and they eat the Lord's Supper. They have the agape feast. Very same thing that Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians 10, by the way. And he said you can't do that. You can't uh, eat the meal of the table of demons and the table of the Lord. And so once again we see that right eating is important here, doesn't it? We saw that last week, the importance of right eating. And he says, here's the thing, you're tolerating this. You're allowing this kind of stuff to happen. There's some men that are leaving, it's because they hate this message. <clears throat> now, they're going to, to the pastor's prayer uh, meeting, so I just want you to know that. <clears throat> Notice when I talked about sexual immorality and eating meals offered to the pagans, they got up and they left. <clears throat> now, look at this. <clears throat> so that was his concern, okay? That's his concern. Now, here's a second concern. The second concern is found in verse 15. Thus also, there's a second problem I've got with, you, with this church. You also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Now back in chapter, verse 6 of chapter 2, the church at Ephesus uh, were allowing the deeds of the Nicolaitans to go on. Evidently, there was this guy named Nicholas who was, had a following, and they were teaching the church members to do bad things, and he was teaching bad things. And he said, you allow the teaching of this heretic to go on in your church, and I hate it. Don't tolerate eating meals in pagan temples, and certainly don't tolerate bad doctrine in your church. He said, I hate that. So he basically lets them know that we're not to be a tolerant church when it comes to certain things. Now here's the cure. Look at verse 16. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them. The persecutors and... The perpetrators of bad doctrine, he says, I will fight against them with what? The sword of my mouth. Jesus claims the right of execution just like the city of Pergamos had the right of execution. In Christ's eyes, this is a capital of crime. He says, I will come and I'll basically take their life. It doesn't mean he's going to literally you know, chop them down with a sword. He says, I'm going to take their life. They're be, I'm going to be their judge. And they're going to, uh, they're not going to have eternal life. They're going to have no life, basically. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 16. He said, I'll come to you. Do You see that? I'll come to you, but I will fight them. Do You see that? I will come to you, but I will fight them. He will come to this church in judgment, but he's not going to judge the entire church. He's only going to judge the individuals who are sinning. Now, look at verse 17. He that has an ear, that's the individual. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now notice, the message is to the churches, it's to everybody, but not everyone's going to heed that. Only he that has the ear. To him that overcomes, that's the one who listens and obeys. To him that overcomes, and that overcomes means? stops doing those bad things, doesn't eat those meals anymore, doesn't deny the name of Christ, to him that overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. There's the food again. I'll give the hidden manna to those to eat. Now, what was manna? Yeah, Manna was the bread from heaven that came down and sustained the Jews during the wilderness for 40 years. But he calls this That was obvious. That was public manna. He's talking about hidden manna. Some of the manna, remember, after they got into the promised land, they reached the kingdom. Some of that manna was put in the ark of the covenant, hidden away, and placed in the tabernacle. And it was a constant reminder that God will sustain you. All they had to do was look back and remember how the manna came down every day and how God sustained them, and it was a reminder that God would continue to sustain them. He's saying, if you don't eat in the temple of Caesar and sacrifice to the gods, don't worry about it. I'll give you, I've got food for you. It's hidden. But one day the tabernacle of God's going to be with man, isn't it? That's what Revelation 21 and 22 is all about. The tabernacle of man, with God, God's going to be with man, and he's going to distribute this manna to us. There's going to be a great messianic feast. We may not be eating it now. When we had the Lord's Supper, in a sense, we are eating it in anticipation of this great messianic feast. He said, but one day I will give to you manna, all that you want. And that's, I believe, is when the kingdom comes. And then he says this, And I will give him, the one who obeys, a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, what in the world is this white stone? Now, there's two theories about the white stone. One is a judicial theory, because when capital crimes were being tried, the judge and the jurors were given two stones. They were given a black stone and a white stone. And at the end of the trial, you had to cast your vote. If you cast your vote with the white stone, it meant not guilty. So if Jesus could be saying, and I will proclaim you not guilty. Rome puts you to death and says guilty. I will say not guilty. You'll be justified. That's theory number one. But the second theory is even stronger, I think. In New Testament times, to get into that pagan feast... When you went to the temple to eat in that pagan feast, to eat a pagan feast, you had to have a token to get in there. And it had to have the the name of the host written on it who had invited you to that meal. Jesus says, one day I'm going to give you a meal. He calls it manna. It's going to be in the kingdom. And guess what? To get into that messianic banquet, you have to have the token with the right name on it. Now, what is that name? Well, <laughs> that's something we don't know. We don't know if it's Jesus' name, but when you get home today, I would like, love to turn there, but when you get home today, look over at Revelation 14.1. It talks about the Father's name being given. Look over at Revelation 19.12. It talks about names, but I think that is admission into the Messianic feast. It might be that he gives you a new name. We say, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. But a token to get into the feast. And only those who are the overcomers will receive it. So the end game is the kingdom of God. Resurrection from the dead. And a messianic banquet that's reserved for those who are faithful all the way to the end. Even at the cost of death. Next week we'll pick up at the fourth church in verse 18. The church at Thyatira. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these foundational letters provide clues to the meaning of the rest of this mysterious book. Oh, Lord, help us to heed the messages to these churches, realizing that they can be applied to us. Help us to be faithful to the end, not fall into the what-if syndrome, the worry syndrome, And help us to realize, Lord, when we are faithful and overcome that we have the rewards of the kingdom of God. Help us not to be tolerant people when it comes to essential things, but help us to be loving people at all times. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.